we will discuss how scholars of religion can share work related to the study, can share work related issues to the study of religion and this election process. We are pleased to host co-presenters, David Campbell, Iva E. Carruthers, Robert P. Jones, Terrence Johnson, Vincent Lloyd, and Melissa Rogers. After the presentations, we will have a Q&A session. Today's webinar will last 90 minutes to make time for additional engagement with our audience. This webinar is hosted by the Public Scholars Project, a joint initiative of the Public Understanding of Religion Committee of the American Academy of Religion and the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum. The Public Scholars Project was created this webinar series to help scholars hone their skills at communicating with a variety of publics. Our webinars feature scholars and practitioners who can provide tools, resources, and recommendations for presenting in a variety of settings about a variety of topics. To view recordings of the past Public Scholars Project webinars, as well as this one, please visit the uh, Freedom Center website at www.religiousfreedomcenter.org slash resources slash PSP. At this time, I'm going to introduce our panel in alphabetical order. First, David Campbell is the Packy J.D. Professor of, uh, of American Democracy at the University of Notre Dame and the Chairperson of the Political Science Department. Dr. Campbell is also the author of Why We Vote, How Schools and Communities Shape Our Civic Life, the editor of A Matter of Faith, Religion in the 2004 Presidential Election, and co-editor of Making Civics Count, Citizenship, Education, for a new generation. Iva E. Carruthers is a founding trustee and general secretary of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference. Dr. Carruthers is Professor Emeritus and former chairperson of the sociology department at Northeastern Illinois University and co-editor of Blow the Trumpet in Zion, Global Vision and Action for the 21st Century Black Church. She is also founder of Lois House, an urban retreat in Chicago. Terrence L. Johnson is Associate Professor of Religion and Politics in the Department of Government at George Washington, at Georgetown, excuse me, University, and also an affiliate faculty member of the Department of African American Studies and a senior fellow at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. He is the author of Tragic Soul Life, W.E. Du Bois and the Moral Crisis Facing American Democracy. Robert P. Jones is the CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and a leading scholar and commentator on religion, culture, and politics. He is the author of a forthcoming book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and his previous work, The End of White Christian America, which won the 2019 Grora Mary, Award in Religion, Goromaya Award in Religion. Vincent Lloyd is Associate Professor of Theology and Religious Studies and Director of Americana Studies at Villanova University, where he also directs the Villanova Political Theology Project. Lloyd co-edits the journal Political Theology and edits the Reflection and Theory in the Study of Religion book series for the American Academy of Religion. His book, Black Dignity, a Philosophy is forthcoming. 
Melissa Rogers is a visiting professor at Wake Forest University Divinity School and a non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings. From 2013 to 2017, Melissa served as a special assistant to President Barack Obama and executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Her area of expertise includes the First Amendment's rights clauses and religion in American public life. We'll now hear from our presenters in alphabetical order. After then, we will have our Q&A session. I believe that means I start. Let me start by asking, am I coming through okay? I was having some technical problems earlier. No echoes or anything? All right, if, if there are echoes, please wave at the screen or something and let me know and I'll try to switch something here and make it better. Um, let me begin by uh, thanking the organizers of this um, event. First of all, we should note just, just, just how pathetic this organization is, that this was set up as a Zoom meeting long before any of us even knew what a Zoom, meet Zoom meeting was. That's very impressive. But um, in addition to their, for their force, it's also worth recognizing how nimble the organizers have been in um, ensuring that this discussion includes a broad range of scholars so that we can talk not only about long-term issues regarding religion and its role in, in American politics, but also what's happening right now in the country on the ground, which of course is very much on all of our minds. And I do appreciate um, their ability to be, um, as I said, so, so nimble in putting this together. And it's, it's really an honor to be a part of this. Um, I am going to spend a few minutes and talk a little bit about a challenge that I think all of us who study religion and might be communicating with either the press or in some other way communicating our um, ideas and thoughts and concepts uh, to a broader audience, a challenge that all of us face, and that is to walk a fine line between recognizing the complexity of religion while at the same time giving reporters or editors or the host of a blog or whoever else you might be working with something they can use. Because reporters and editors and people of that ilk, they generally have a pretty low tolerance for nuance and complexity. And yet nuance and complexity is generally speaking what we do. Uh, it's going to vary across disciplines. Some disciplines are maybe a little more into complexifying and others a little more into simplifying. But in general, as scholars, we're in the business of making things more complicated, whereas folks in the press are generally in the business of trying to make things as straightforward and simple and as easy to understand as possible. And so it's, I suppose, one possible reaction to say, if you're a scholar, I just give up. I don't even want to try to communicate with these folks. It's just too hard. If I don't have 10,000 words, I can't get my point across. But I don't think that's the right spirit to take. And I'm assuming that because um, we have, as I look at the screen here, 94 participants today, that at least the group gathered here and maybe those who watch this uh, once it's recorded and posted, posted um, feel otherwise, as I do, that it is worth, it is worth at least trying to communicate what was scholars to a broader audience. Because let's face it, if we limit ourselves to we limit ourselves only to an academic audience, we're only speaking to a narrow niche of society. Whereas if we can communicate more broadly, obviously we can reach uh, more people and, and, and maybe bring a little greater understanding. So I thought I might give a couple of examples of what I'm talking about and then show you how I would handle those examples and maybe we can learn 
from that. Um, um, so two examples, examples of kind to me as a political scientist um, who is often, often approached by reporters and seeking comment on this, that, or the other thing. One of the most common questions that I am often asked on your end, and it seems to be when you're when you're hitting your um the wire of your headset. And now we we actually lost your audio. All right, I have changed my audio. Audio, can you hear that better? Still yeah, static. That, static there. there's a little static, but we can hear you. Yeah, now yeah, I now. hear static on your end as well. Can you disconnect the headset? I've done that. The irony is that I came, I'm in my office right now, and I actually came to this is supposedly where I have a better Wi Fi connection than at home. Am I still static -y? Yes. A little bit. Okay. So, one option, if we can pause now, um, I'll send you the call in number, or you actually should have the call in number from your registration. For a phone, and I think that that might be a little bit of clearer audio quality. Um, all right, so I'll do that and then mute the phone or move, yeah. mute my microphone. Yeah. Okay, um, why don't you send that to me in the chat just so I don't have to go looking for it? For it. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. And in the meantime, while I look for that, should we um, move to Dr. Crothers and then we'll, we'll come back? Yes. Right. Okay, I'm going to try and I hope I have greater success than David, but David, we know how much the technology is always in the background taking over. I too want to thank um, AAR and the Freedom Forum for this invitation. And I am certainly uh, very, very mindful that as we uh, convene, at this very moment, the final memorial service for George Floyd is uh, happening before he will be laid to rest beside his mother. And so it is with that fullness of heart for mourning and lamentation that I am here hoping to offer a word that will be um, to some extent um, transformative for the way we even think about um, the challenges before us. The Wizard of Oz is full of multiple lessons, but the one that has always stuck in my mind and spirit is the narrative of the lion. The wizard says to the lion, and I quote, back where I come from, we have men who are called heroes. Once a year, they take their fortitude out of mothballs and they have no more courage than you have. The spineless lion received from the Wizard of Oz a medal for courage. But you see, when you think about that story, we know that what the lion really needed was a heart. The medal of courage can be worn as an outer symbol of what does not exist. The simulacra of courage is no more than spineless bravado when a heart would have given the lion the fearlessness he so desired. And so it is with many badge-wearing Christians and the faithful of other religions. For 400 years, Christianity has been trapped in the simulacrum of white hegemony, oppression, and racism, dressed up in freedom and liberty for all, in God we trust, and oh say can you see, while at the same time spinning a tale of inferiority, unworthiness, and inhumanity as the narrative of Black lives and Black living. 
and it begins with a curse of ham and a Michelangelo rendition of a blind, blue-eyed Jesus. The epistemology and hermeneutics of evangelical and white Christianity cross denominations are embedded in the language of empire. I dare say, in some cases, like the lion and the wizard of Oz, the narrative spun by evangelical and white Christians can be so far removed from the centrality of Jesus's ministry that it is difficult to even call it Christianity. Though, of course, we must know that the God who was prayed for at the top of the slave ship was not the same God who was prayed for at the bottom of the slave ship. Justice and righteousness gets construed to be of the spirit and out of human relationship. And thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is a justification for justice delayed. Well, the time has come for truth telling and America to choose its ultimate fate. The reality is that despite the frontal attacks on the road to the White House in 2008 and 12 elections and the backlash journey to cleanse and take America back in 2016, it took the vicious inhumane murder of George Floyd with a cloud of several other public crucifixions in the same period to expose to the world the brutality and trauma under which Black America has been living while perpetrating the narrative of In God We Trust. America has had to look in the mirror in the midst of a pandemic that brought its economic engine to its knees. And recovery can happen, but the question is in whose interest, and this time around, it impacts whites like never before. Moreover, though few in the media will call out the dangerously close behaviors and characteristics of fascism, military state, and genocide, which is in the air, and I note Madeleine Albright dare to do so, some who are even considered as liberal journalists and Christians still dare to argue, question, or make pretend that the language, behavior, and even policies coming from Pennsylvania Avenue are perhaps idiosyncratic or disingenuous, but still on the continuum of normal or acceptable. The truth is this country is headed for a blindsided fall off the cliff of a make-believe democracy, and the fall can come fast and hard before this upcoming election. It could be bathed in episodes of human carnage, state-sponsored or even foreign infiltrator actors. Leading up to the 2020 election, the seeds of racial contempt and hatred coded language and protected policies from the Justice Department to empower the alt-right and intentionally mislabel the left have been planted. But perhaps the air is different this time around. The convergence of C-19, the temerity and tenacity of the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd murder in our face for eight minutes and 46 seconds, and white youth and adults taking to the streets for now 14 days may have turned this moment into a Zacchaeus narrative which might propel this nation forward instead of backwards. It will take, however, the language of the academy and media to understand and break down a lexicon of justice over charity, insurrection over riot, bailout over hand and reparations over subsidies and grants. The Zacchaeus narrative is informative for this transformative imperative moment. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus was a tax collector at the time of Jesus, allied with colonial, foreign, and military systems of Jesus' day. 
his encounter with Jesus, when Jesus invites him to his home, prompts Zacchaeus to conversion, repentance, and reparation. His narrative is a story that needs to be told in the academy and the church. As Juneteenth approaches, the opportunity to really explore a national agenda of reparatory justice and reparations is upon us. It will require confessions and contrition, pledges of non-repeat, defunding models of inhumanity and systemic racism, and refunding towards human life and justice and equity, and arms distance so that decolonization and destructuring can occur. And if not, the struggle will still continue. As a non-governmental organization of the United Nations, the organization I'm privileged to represent, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, has become a signatory on three important human rights-related documents of the United Nations this week. In partnership with the ACLU and the family members of George Floyd and Michael Brown and Breonna Taylor and Philando Castile, we've issued calling on member states of the United Nations Human Rights Council to convene a special session to address the state's sanctioned murders and violence occurring in the United States. In partnership with the International Coalition of People of African Descent, we've also submitted a request and a report on the midterm review of the International Decade for People of African Descent, as well as a note on the impact of COVID-19 and the response to the pandemic in terms of disproportionate impact on people of African descent. In the midst of our mourning and struggling for human rights and dignity, we have come to the question, can you not discern the times, the signs of the time? We are reminded that Martin Luther King said on April 4th that a time comes when silence is betrayal. It would be ahistorical for me to sit today and not in this conversation, look at and feel the ancestral spirit of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner of the African Methodist Episcopal Church who in 1896, when asked the question about the upcoming election of the presidents, his retort was as relevant then as it is now. And I will close with that. And he said, and I quote, all the advice we have to give to our people is vote for the gold standard. What time have we to bother with the gold or silver side, either while we are lynched, burnt, flayed, imprisoned, etc., two thirds of the time for nothing? Vote any way in your power to overthrow, destroy, ruin, blot out, divide, crush, dissolve, wreck, consume, demolish, disorganize, suppress, subvert, smash, shipwreck, crumble, nullify, upset, uproot, expunge, and fragmentize this nation until it learns to deal justly with the black man. This is all the advice we have to give. 1896, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner. And so I offer up to all of us in this conversation and to those who are listening that we must leave this place ready to explain in terms that everyone can understand what it means when we say no justice, no peace. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carruthers, for opening us with that. Next, uh, David, are you ready? Do you want to try it? Shall we go? All right, can you hear me on the phone? That's very yes. clear, yep. All right, uh, let me apologize for my technical problems. As you may or may not have heard, I actually came into my campus office today rather than working from home 
because I thought the university's Wi-Fi would be better, and usually it is, and I even had a headset in order to try to make things better. So I apologize for the technical problems, but I suppose that's the Zoom world we live in. Um, let me thank uh, Ivar, our previous speaker, for really um, very powerful words. Um, hopefully what I'm about to say will complement what you've just heard. My approach is going to be a little more nuts and bolts, and that is how it is that we as scholars can communicate with um, a more public audience. And as I was uh, beginning to say uh, earlier, one of the questions that I often get as a scholar who has studied religion and politics is about the Catholic vote. Um, and I suppose because I'm at Notre Dame, I get this question maybe more than others. Um, but reporters often call and they want me to say, well, what's the Catholic vote going to do in this election? And the challenge I have in trying to answer that question is that there is no Catholic vote that doesn't exist. You could say that there are Catholic votes, plural, but to speak of one monolithic group of Catholics in the country uh, would just simply be uh, misleading. And, but that's a challenge because I'm being asked a question and I feel I do have some expertise to share, but at the same time, I need to sort of recognize that maybe life is a little more complicated than the question that has been posed to me. A second example, which speaks more uh, directly to the current research that I've been doing is about the non-religious population. So almost anyone who's being paid any attention to religious trends in the last 20 or 25 years would be aware that there has been a dramatic growth in the percentage of the population who report no religious affiliation. Of course, they're often called the religious nuns. So again, I'll often get the question about the non-religious population. How are they going to vote? Are they going to turn out to vote? What can we expect from them? And again, the story is more complicated than just simply looking at all of the religious nuns as a single group. In fact, I would say that's actually very misleading to speak of them as though they are one block within uh, the population. But as has been noted in the, in the chat, I see um, reporters and editors, they generally don't have the bandwidth for a lot of complexity. And so this is a challenge. What do we do with that? And I'm reminded of a quote that's uh, probably apocryphal, but nonetheless useful. It's often attributed to Albert Einstein. And Einstein once said, supposedly, that any theory should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. In other words, we should have a clear point, a point that can be phrased simply, which is different than saying simplistically, but rather straightforwardly or in a way that's easy to understand. So it should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. So in practical terms, my advice is, when communicating about otherwise complicated issues, to pick one wrinkle, one bit of nuance, and focus on that. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by that. So when I'm asked the question about the Catholic vote and I respond by saying, well, there is no Catholic vote, there are Catholic votes, I could go on and give an hour long lecture about the many complexities that you would find within the American Catholic population, let alone the global Catholic population. But I don't do that. I generally try to find one important distinction. The one that I typically would focus on would be white or Anglo Catholics versus Latino Catholics, because almost everything that gets written about Catholics in the United States is actually about white Catholics, which again is kind of misleading because it turns out they're a shrinking share of the Catholic population, whereas Latinos of course are a growing share. And those two groups are very different politically. 
Now, there are other distinctions that I could draw, young Catholics, old Catholics. Um, even within the Latino population, there are distinctions. Obviously, within the white Catholic population, there are distinctions. But when I'm trying to make a point, I generally focus on just one distinction and try to get that point across. Similarly, when talking about the secular or the non-religious population, I'm making one distinction. And the one that I would typically draw is between those people who are simply not religious, that is, they define themselves by what they are not, so people who are not religiously affiliated would be a good example, versus um, what my co-authors and I call secularists, people who have embraced and affirm affirmatively embraced a secular worldview, they use a secular identity, they think of the, world in, of the world in secular terms. They often don't have a religious affiliation either, but they're very different than people who just define themselves by what they are not. The people who are simply non-religious, they're often not just disconnected from religion, they're often disconnected from civic institutions of all sorts, quite alienated in many cases, and therefore often Trump voters. Whereas the secular population, those who have affirmatively taken on a secular identity, they're very engaged politically. And often they are on the progressive end of the spectrum. So they might, you might think of them as being Bernie Sanders voters. And to try to group those two groups together is again, just highly misleading. Now there are lots of other things that I could say. I lots of other data that I could share with a reporter, but if I was talking about the secular population, that's the main distinction that I would wanna focus on. I could give lots of other examples. Evangelicals. Almost everything that's written about evangelicals in America is about white evangelicals. Well, it turns out there are actually lots of different types of evangelicals. And so if you're asked a question about evangelicals, it's probably useful to draw a distinction, but not too much nuance or else you'll lose the person you're trying to communicate with. Um, and you could say the same about the Jewish population and about the black church, et cetera, et cetera. But since my message here is to keep it simple, I will not go on too much longer. Um, and let me just close with an observation that all of us should remember when you're coming from the academy and engaging publicly, whether it's with a reporter or with an editor. And that is that we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the other person, of that editor, of that reporter. Remember, they're under a deadline. They have limited space. What they write needs to conform to the norms of journalism. For example, they don't want to bury the lead. Whereas, as I've mentioned, we are in the business of trying to communicate complexity and nuance. And we should remember that even with the constraints that the, the journalists or the editors might have, they've come to us because we understand the nuance, because of our expertise. And so in walking that fine line, we need to remember their constraints while also trying to communicate what we know. So if you remember nothing else from what I've said, Remember to give them some nuance, but just a little, not too much at once. And the good news is that if you succeed and if you develop a rapport with a reporter or with an editor or with a host of a website or whatnot, they will call you back. They will call on you again, which will give you yet another opportunity to introduce a little more nuance and make another point in a self-reinforcing process that just rolls on. So it's not just a one-shot deal, it's an opportunity to build a relationship and therefore communicate more and more as time rolls on. So bottom line, keep it simple, but not too simple. And with that, I'll close, thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, now we will have Terrence Johnson, TJ. Uh, 
Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I want to thank the organizers again for uh, for the invitation for this uh, great forum. Uh, I just want to begin just in terms of expressing my own sort of trepidation in terms of how we often think about we in terms of the academy thinking about you know how do we engage the public. Um, you know, I have primarily engaged you know what Hickenbach Hickenbotham calls sort of the counter public as a way to engage public life. In part because when I entered um, the academy, there was this sort of strange kind of um, sort of cloud over over particularly African American scholars in terms of well, are you going to do real intellectual work or are you going to become a public intellectual? And I never quite understood why that academy existed, and I never quite understood why many of my colleagues they bemoaned you know leaders or thinkers like Cornell West or Michael Dyson or Bell Hooks. Um, and as a result, I was always sort of torn in terms of, you know, what, what is my role in terms of as a, as, a, as a scholar, as intellectual, and in terms of the places I'm engaging. And I decided very on, I wanted to engage places where I felt safe, where I felt that my views could actually grow, and also in, a, in places where I could learn from the folk I'm engaging. So I prim primarily worked um, within AMU Church and within churches where I've lived to think through sort of a number of issues, right, as it relates to politics, as it relates to religion. Um, and also, you know, so from that, I have in some ways really kind of ignored these, like media and or the university as a, as a place where I could engage, in part because I see that they turn to us, meaning African-Americans, women, Latinx folk, they turn to us in moments of crises. And I'm not sure when we make these responses or write our editorials they, that they do more than to appeal to a kind of very liberal media. And so I've always been sort of, you know, just torn as to how I respond when I receive invitations or requests to, re to make a comment. And so um, I primarily say in the counter public and that's sort of my choice. And, I, I, and now I'm beginning to sort of rethink that kind of uh, engagement to figure out, may I expand it? And so one way I've been doing so is, as I've, you know, thinking, as I've written a blog recently trying to think through this, you know, I'm beginning to figure out, well, how do I use my experiences within the counter public, right, within these black churches to help inform what's happening now, also to inform my own scholarship. And what's interesting is that what I'm hearing is a very interesting kind of call that I've read in the literature, but haven't heard publicly in quite some time, probably not since the 60s. This whole idea that, you know, Black Lives Matter, and especially sort of the black women who are, who are pushing forth this agenda around police reform and criminal justice reform, are really calling out, um, and we should, mentioned the other day, this whole idea that, well, the system is working as it was designed. In other words, there's this whole push in terms of how do we move away from this idea of reforming the system to actually this idea of, of the system needs transformation. And as scholars, how do we make sense of that? And whether or not you agree with the statement, my, my push is this idea that, well, let's take, that, let's take the question head on. What does it mean then as a starting point that we start with our basic research question that what the system is actually broken and if it's that, and is, is, is actually we're well, not broken but designed to work in this way and if that's the case how does it change our scholarship how does it change our approach um and i've been thinking these questions through with audrey lord for the notion of you know the master's tools and wondering whether or not what does it look like then to rethink the very tools rethink the very questions we uh, are, are raising if we turn to non-traditional thinkers or traditions thinkers that we have sort of marginalized. And, and then what does it mean to have a kind of gender-based and a sort of racialized-based uh, approach to thinking about reform, thinking about transformation, and thinking about the very questions that we are engaging. And so 
you know, I, I really want to situate some of my comments in, in terms of this idea of, you know, helping communities, right, think about big questions, but also listening to communities, right, and allowing their questions, their concerns to inform not only my scholarship, but how I, how I see and engage them and how I see, see and engage um, my students in the classroom. Um, so I think I want to end there and then wait for questions to push me a bit more in my own thinking. So, so thank you. Thank you, Terrence. Next, we will have um, Robbie, Robert P. Jones. Hi, everybody. Um, really thrilled to be here and uh, uh, honored to be with uh, such distinguished panels. So thank you, Dr. Crothers, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Campbell. Um, and you know, I'm in a little bit of a unique spot, having come out of the academy um, and um, heading a, a nonprofit organization, the Public Religion Research Institute. Um, where we have kind of one foot in the academy, but one foot kind of in the media landscape and kind of part of our day-to-day -day and week-to-week work is trying to push things into the media, help reporters um, there. And uh, one, one thing I want to say is I've noticed in the chat things that there are some reporters um, uh, with us today. Um, and I just personally want to say thank you uh, for all the work that you're doing. Um, it has never been more important, I think, for the work of scholars and the work of reporters um, uh, today. So I want to thank all of you for your courageous work um, out there, um, <clears throat> kind of telling the truth about what's what's happening. Um, and, and I thought I'd share one, um, actually an, an email exchange I had with a reporter this morning who works at kind of this intersection of um, racial justice and, um, <clears throat> and religion uh, and politics. Um, uh, and that the reporter uh, just just said in, in a quote, looking ahead, you know, to this to the rest of this year toward the election, um, said this, and the you and the reporter used the word our, um, and that's because this reporter like works at this intersection of kind of religion and politics, and I just said this: American politics has steadily evolved more toward our interest and expertise, with racial, cultural, and religious identity moving to the absolute center of the stage. So this is from a veteran um, political reporter um, that really does see this uh, nexus as being the thing that's going to define, you know, the next election in our, our current current coverage um, and and going forward into the election. So you know, good publicly accessible scholarship and good reporting never been more important to help uh, a public uh, really help our democracy and help the public be informed. Um, so I want to say just a couple of things on uh, substance um, that may help provide some frames in, in terms of that nexus of things. Um, so maybe, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking at um, kind of the demographics and the shifts among white Christians in particular. Um, and that shift really has, you know, set the stage for Trump and has set the stage for where we are today. Um, just a couple of things that may be helpful, because um, I think sometimes um, just in nuts and bolts, framing something that you're pitching to a reporter um, or in an op-ed with some data is often a really good way to um, get it attention and get it anchored, get your argument anchored. Um, and, and reporters are more and more relying on um, things like quantitative data. Um, and you don't have to be a quantitative person to use it uh, well, uh, but kind of being on the lookout. So I'm gonna give you just a few things from some of our recent uh, work that I use all the time, kind of talking points I use a lot to help explain the, um, the place we're in, the demographic shifts. The biggest one um, uh, that I laid out in the end of White Christian America was that white Christians, that is all Christians, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, taken together, white non-Hispanic Christians, 
have dropped from 54% of the population at the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency in 2008, um, when he was running for president, to 42% today. So that's 12 points basically over a decade. Um, it is a huge drop um, and a big tipping point in the country. Um, and the, the other sort of news underneath this is that white evangelicals um, in the last 10 years have actually been part of that drop rather than being exempt from that drop as they were in decades prior to the last one. So just looking at white evangelicals, they dropped from 21% in 2008 to 15% today um, and dropped two percentage points just since 2016. So when you think about how close this election, uh, the last election was, this one is likely to be um, a drop in a core group like that uh, uh, for President Trump's coalition, for example. I spent a lot of time talking to reporters about this. Uh, this has happened nationwide, but it's also happened in those key battleground states in, in the Midwest. Michigan, for example, in 2016, 18% white evangelical. Today, it's 15. Um, and the other kind of big thing that's going on that explains some of our dynamics is that the, the, the two political parties have sorted themselves along the lines of race and class. Um, oh, sorry, race, race and religion uh, and class too, but race and religion predominantly. Um, the, the Republican Party today, self-identified Republicans are 70% white and Christian. Uh, self-identified Democrats are only 30% white and Christian. Um, and this, I think, explains a lot about um, kind of what priorities are there, what the two parties see and don't see as priorities and even as realities um, in the country. Um, it's a thing important to hang on to. Um, lastly, um, I'll put, as soon as I'm done, I'll stick the, um, the reference. We just had some polling last week that got covered in the New York Times and others about a drop um, in Trump favorability since March. Just a couple highlights. Um, uh, Trump's favorability dropped 15 points among white evangelicals, and it dropped 27 points among white Catholics um, uh, since March. Uh, that's the big one, uh, given the, the high percentage of white Catholics in, in those battleground states that, electorally speaking, matter. Um, white mainline Protestants, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, have been just basically volatile. They've kind of moved around a lot, but not a clear, as clear drop um, as among um, uh, white evangelicals and, and white Catholics. Um, and reporting, just important to remember that all three of those groups voted majority for Trump in 2016. Um, we, everybody knows the kind of white evangelical number, 81% voted for Trump, but people probably don't recognize, realize, and reporters don't often, that white Catholics voted 64% um, for Trump and white mainline Protestants, which we think about as the more liberal end of the white Protestant world, uh, voted 57% uh, uh, for Donald Trump. So just a couple of facts there, and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap with a few things just from my experience, um, both this year and the particular moment we're in, and just in general about connecting with reporters. Um, uh, the, the media landscape is always crowded, but it's never been more crowded than I've seen it this year. You know, we've got a pandemic, we have national protests everywhere around racial justice issues. We have a president um, who's ignoring the former and pouring gas on the flames of the latter. Um, and we have a national election coming up. Um, so more than ever, just in terms of practical terms, um, we all, if we want to kind of break through, we have to kind of think about what is it that's going to break through that much noise and what do we really have to offer? Um, just as on a personal note, um, someone who tries to write op-eds on a fairly regular basis, I've never had more difficulty getting an op-ed placed in a national publication than I have this year. Um, it's just a really tough landscape out there. So I think thinking local, thinking state, you know, paper of record, thinking local television, those kinds of things are a really important, uh, I think, strategy um, for this year. 
Um, and then I was thinking about what, you know, what, what can we offer as academics? Um, we can certainly offer area expertise. I, I think David talked about that pretty well, but some other things that I've found that reporters um, come to us for um, our historical perspective, the long view. So, you know, can we say something like, yeah, we've been here before and this is how it went, or no, actually this is something unique, something we haven't quite faced in this form before, but offering that kind of big picture uh, from deep expertise in the field um, or a, a look underneath. Um, I think this is something else that is really helpful for reporters. You know, if you see ripples going on in the pond, what's underneath the surface, uh, uh, surface causing it? Um, can you, you know, lines like, look, what's really going on here is X. Uh, and offering that to help reporters just cut through uh, things and get some clarity. Um, and then I think the last thing, I, I think I'll put it here as a challenge. I do think the Academy has often, um, you know, as journalists uh, training do, um, you know, often conditioned all of us to be neutral on all things um, in, in many ways, like that's certainly, uh, you know, objectivity. Um, and there's, there's certainly some things important about that. Um, but I think in the current environment, you know, we're gonna have to think beyond the fine people on all sides. This is kind of my take on it. Um, and that even as scholars, we can, we can call things a threat to democracy. We can call things a threat to justice. Um, even that takes us a little bit out of our comfort zones. Um, but I, and I think sometimes we think the, the, um, the, the options are you can do that, but in order to do that, you have to leave your expertise behind. I think we can actually do that and bring our expertise with us um, along the way. Um, I get the last couple of points here, um, you, just in terms of the kind of breaking through, more than ever, it's always true for like op-eds and short pieces under a thousand words, but it's one argument, right? It's one point. Um, and, it, and that one point is in the first or second sentence. Um, and then it's tied with a, a title, um, a couple that, that make people want to read. Um, so, you know, just a couple I've used in the past um, uh, that I worked a lot actually on the title, um, you know, the Republican time machine that might elect Trump, like makes you want to read it. Um, one I wrote recently at Sojourners, um, white supremacy is a threat to public health. Uh, you know, sh very quick, short statements that sort of make you want to get in and read. Um, and lastly, the one, the one thing that I think I did not know about um, connecting to media and getting uh, things into the media is that um, it really is about relationships at the end of the day. Um, so knowing a reporter and being a resource to them, even if it's on background, you're not getting quoted, sending reporters things on a regular basis, even if it's not an official pitch, so that they begin to see you as a resource, I think is one way to start. So starting with local reporters and building relationships uh, there and you know, then building, building your way up, or if there's a particular national reporter that is just writing all the time right in your area, um, you know, make sure you're in touch with them. Um, like I, I make a point when I'm, when I'm in New York, I try to take a reporter to coffee. Um, you know, even if it's just, I'm not pitching anything, I'm just trying to get to know them, let them know what we have coming up, uh, send them your latest article, find out, I think David says, what, what can you do to make their job easier? Um, you know, it, it's daunting, I think, to most of us as academics to think about getting an assignment at 9 a.m. and having to turn it in at five. Um, you've got to have it fact checked, you've got to have interviews, you've got to have sources, multiple sources, uh, coherent uh, writing, and that's all going to happen in like eight hours. Um, and so, Figuring out there, and there's one other thing that someone said to me early on uh, that I think has stayed with me, is answer the phone and return emails immediately. Like I think our, our um, temptation is to take an hour because we want to kind of get all of our sort of things in, uh, in line and get all of our talking points typed up. By that report, many reporters have moved on. Um, I, just last week I had you know one that I took 
45 minutes just because I didn't see it. And by the time I, I had them, they had booked somebody else. Um, so I think just kind of realizing how quickly reporters have got to leave, uh, got, got to move on the stories that they have um, and being willing to kind of stay with them and be a resource. And it's fine to say, look, I'll have to call you back on that one. I can, I have to look that up. You know, I think that's fine for, for folks. You have to have everything lined up lined up first. But, um, you know, I, I, I want to kind of end where I started and say, I, I do think this is a really important time uh, for scholars, for reporters. Uh, we have a real public service um, uh, to offer um, that, you know, perhaps in our lifetime has never been uh, more important with everything going on today. So thank you to, Lu to Luce for funding this and for the Freedom Forum and, um, and also to the AAR. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for um, for those comments. And I too am glad to see we have journalists um, at the webinar today. <clears throat> also, it is so nice to be able to hear, to, to feel the balance with your voices and your context and to be able to bring that together. So this is a wonderful mixture and we look forward to the engagement with the questions from our audience. So next we will have uh, Vincent Lloyd. Thanks so much for having me here. And I wanna take the, the charge quite uh, narrowly of uh, providing tips for sharing religious studies with the public. Uh, and it, I think when we imagine the academy or the academic space on one hand and the mass media space on the other, the distance between the two can seem uh, very great uh, and very dramatic. And uh, it can be, seem daunting to to move from one to the other with different norms, different values, and, and so on. Uh, but uh, in the last generation, this new uh, space of what we might call semi-academic but public-facing uh, blogs has uh, blossomed. Uh, and I, I'd like to think uh, with us about that space as uh, a venue where there's possibility for bridging that huge gap between the mass media space uh, and the academic space. Uh, and uh, along, the, along with that, thinking about how an academic who might be used to writing a 9,000 word um, art, scholarly article for peer review, instead of distilling that down into the uh, four sentence um, uh, soundbite, could think about distilling that down to 1,000 words that uh, could be shared with a, um, an audience that might be a mix of academics in a variety of fields and some non-academics and some um, folks from the media looking for background and context for what they're writing. Uh, and space, I would think of uh, venues like uh, Religion and Politics, Imminent Frame, uh, the Berkeley Forum, uh, the Australian uh, Public Broadcasting um, ABC Religion and Ethics site has been doing a lot of this sort of thing recently. Uh, previously, Religion Dispatches, and uh, then the, the journal that I edit, Political Theology, has a uh, public-facing website, uh, politicaltheology.com as well. Um, and uh, in this, uh, j just to give you an example of um, what the space looks like, uh, the, this journal that I co-edit, Political Theology, for the typical article we publish, uh, we get maybe 150 readers uh, who access the article. Uh, for, uh, on the, the, the website, we, for 1,000 or 1,500 word posts, we get about 20,000 uh, readers every month who are looking at that content. So it's a, a, a significant um, uh, order of magnitude uh, increase in readership, but it's also not the hundreds of thousands uh, or more people that one might get you know, talking to folks from CNN and, or the New York uh, Times. Uh, and I mean, I think it is important to remember that this space didn't exist uh, a generation ago. And so uh, senior colleagues uh, might have reluctance or 
uh, lack of knowledge about what it looks like. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, it can take some getting used to uh, for, for peers to um, engage with that space. Uh, and there are advantages and disadvantages uh, to engaging with it. One advantage, as I mentioned, is its audience size, international uh, readership that one can get it, uh, the sort of bigger portion of the, the public beyond just one's uh, colleagues, uh, immediate colleagues uh, that one can speak to accessibility, that these things are open access as opposed to um, uh, an academic journal where one has to be a member of the guild uh, in general to have access through a library. Uh, and also if one is interested in doing more mass media work, the sort of visibility that one uh, gets from uh, uh, writing in, in these sorts of venues uh, without as uh, uh, much of a concern about dumbing down uh, for the, the general public, uh, that you can try out uh, ideas for a broader public without uh, feeling constrained um, or, or anxiety about speaking very, very, very broadly. Of course, the disadvantages that, that often occur to people that be, can be a distraction from the standard academic path of you know, publication toward uh, tenure. Uh, the uh, subtleties can be lost when expanding to a broader audience. Um, and uh, there can be a, a, an amount of overhead uh, involved in switching one's mode of, acad uh, of writing from a scholarly journal style of writing to a, a broader um, style of writing. So i just like to name a, a couple of myths and then some uh, tips or six tips. Uh, first, myths. Um, one myth that I think uh, one often hears is that only certain topics will have a, a wider appeal. Uh, only certain topics uh, will be of interest to people uh, beyond you know, the, your uh, 20 or 40 colleagues in the academy. Um, while not every topic will be of interest to everyone, uh, I do think that you know, the, the things that motivate us to study what we study in the academy uh, are uh, of uh, you know, things that we can communicate to many people, even if it's about a 15th century monk or about a very uh, eccentric religious community um, uh, far away, uh, our, what originally motivated us can um, be communicated and will, will be of interest to others. Another myth that there's some technical uh, expertise that's needed in writing for the public. Uh, in fact, um, you know, just like uh, students worry about academic writing for the first time, uh, but they, they can do it without a huge amount of you know, effort. Uh, you know, there, there may be some psychological anxiety, but without a huge amount of effort, one can do it. And then thirdly, that people don't care about academic debates, that what we're doing in scholarly writing is intervening in you know, sort of internecine debates between different academic factions. But in fact, um, uh, those debates can be of interest to the general public, right? That, uh, that they can add drama to a story that I was just reading a nice piece in Boston Review about different philosophers writing about hope in different ways, but framed as, you know, uh, here are the intuitive appeals to this, this camp's position. Here are the intuitive reasons to take this camp's position. And here's how they're fighting with each other. And now uh, you as a reader uh, are um, made to sort of take sides or see the, the new view that the, the author is going to present. Finally, just a, a six quick uh, tips um, for this kind of writing. Uh, first, uh, talk to uh, 
non-academic about your academic work. So if you have a neighbor or a family member or someone who's, you know, does, whose life does not center around uh, universities, um, explaining what you're doing and why you're doing it uh, in your scholarly work to that person can be a great starting point for uh, communicating to this uh, in a thousand words to this um, semi-public uh, blog audience. Uh, second, what we do in the classroom all the time uh, is also communicating to this kind of uh, semi-public uh, audience, right? Students who need things explained, uh, who need things put clearly, but who have an interest and capacity to uh, engage with um, intriguing and, and surprising ideas. A third, uh, and this isn't uh, surprise to anyone, uh, foregrounding storytelling, starting and weaving in uh, specific stories of specific people that can be given uh, character and personality, uh, which, you know, even if you're writing about Hobbes or Locke or uh, Karl Barth, uh, there are still stories there that, that can be foregrounded and can give you a, a means to get into the, um, uh, the ideas or the history or the uh, literature that, that you, you has been the center of your academic interests. Um, Fourth, I think experimenting with first-person uh, writing, even if it's not something you're very comfortable with or that you'll end up using in the long term, trying it out, I think can, can be helpful in um, getting uh, an understanding for yourself of what's, what's motivating you and what it, what it might look like to try different uh, voices and different modes of communicating. Uh, fifth, uh, as I mentioned previously, using academic debates uh, as a, to, to generate a, a conversation uh, and to uh, uh, garner a reader's interest. And then finally, um, uh, being sure that one moves beyond uh, conventional wisdom or what one would read in an op-ed uh, page, right? That uh, one doesn't want to just sort of regurgitate uh, the, the sorts of things that one uh, could read in the New York Times, but showcase the, uh, the particular expertise that you have and that you get from going deep uh, in your learning of uh, whatever the, the topic is that, that you're translating for this semi-public audience. Uh, uh, thank you very much. I look forward to the, the discussion. Thank you, Vince Lloyd, for those, the myths and the tips. Next, we will have Melissa Rogers. Great. Hello, everybody. It's great to be with you. And I, too, want to thank AAR and Luce and the Freedom Forum and all these terrific panelists who have given so many wonderful uh, tips. And uh, I'm looking forward to engaging with everybody on the call. I also want to thank all the reporters and other scholars who are on the call. Um, what I think the goal here is for us to find ways for academic work to find a broader audience. And today we're of course looking at trying to find that broader audience during a presidential campaign. And the goal beyond that of course is to deepen people's understanding of important issues that are religiously inflected. So how do we, how do we reach those goals? Well, one way is to look for uh, issues uh, where that will look for ways in which your work intersects with issues that are that may be raised during the presidential campaign and so the area where I'm going to focus on is where religion may intersect with law and public policy during the campaign now I know that 
most aren't lawyers or public policy analysts on the call, but you're all obviously working on religion in some way. And these legal and policy issues very much need your voice to fill out a broader understanding of how religion plays into these legal and public policy issues. So what I'm gonna do is tick off just a few issues um, that you can think about anticipating where your work as a scholar about religion might intersect with those legal and public policy issues. Then I'm gonna list a few dates that you might be able to anticipate uh, that might be relevant to your work and to the presidential campaign. And of course, that's because um, reporters often have to work on the basis of news hooks. So they have to look, you have to pitch them something that is going to be relevant to say, someone earlier in the call mentioned Juneteenth, June 19th, and that's coming up. So some of your work on racial justice and religious communities, you can prepare either commentary that you wanna shop around to a journalist or, or pitch even a radio program or pitch you as a guest on a television program. So that's the significance of the dates. And then I'll just close out with a few other tips to add to those of my colleagues. So um, some of the issues that I just wanted to mention to you are that President Trump and his administration have taken a wide range of executive actions under the banner of religious freedom and that, you know, those executive actions, many of them are highly contested. And Trump will continue to make much of those during the election. They relate to a lot of different issues, including the service of faith-based organizations working with federal funds and where non-discrimination laws and policies that apply to those funds either attach to religious organizations that are receiving those funds or not. Um, they also relate to things like the tax exempt status of nonprofit 501c3 organizations, whether they're religious or non-religious. And of course, we all know there's a lot of uh, debate about how that should work in terms of various communities in the United States, church communities, that might be inviting elected officials to come to their houses of worship to make statements. Um, President Biden has already issued a plan for what he calls safeguarding America's faith-based communities that includes an emphasis on prosecuting hate crimes that are based on religion and increasing security grants for houses of worship that are threatened. You can expect, I think, during the presidential uh, campaign to hear debate about what President Trump has established as a quote unquote faith and opportunity initiative versus the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships that was in the White House when President Obama and Vice President Biden served there. Also, I will just mention that the United States Supreme Court is looking at uh, many blockbuster issues that are religiously inflected. And those issues um, include issues of um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program about immigration and that deal with uh, issues of religious organizations and when they can discriminate and when they cannot discriminate. Uh, it deals with, um, they're, they're looking at many other issues such as the rights of LGBTQ persons under 
federal law. So I can talk on and on about these issues, but they're all very significant and may serve as ways for you to begin to weigh in and deepen the discussion around those issues. I wanted to mention one other Supreme Court issue that's very important, and that is the court is may reconsider the standard that it uses, the legal standard that it uses, to evaluate claims uh, for the free exercise of religion. And this, I think, just opens a wealth of opportunities for religion scholars to begin to talk about free exercise and how they see it manifested and ways in which changing the standard might affect that religious, those religious practices. So having said that, let me just put up very quickly, if I can, some dates that you might want to look at as um, dates that might be hooks for your, um, your work. The United States Supreme Court in June, over a series of Mondays and maybe more dates, will be handing down decisions. Um, so if, you're, if you have some research ready at the ready, you may want to look at uh, which, what the cases are and how your work intersects with those decisions and maybe even tee up an op-ed. I already mentioned Juneteenth. We have June 20th, the Poor People's Campaign Virtual Moral March on DC. This is Reverend Dr. Barber's uh, march. Uh, the latter part of June will be resumption of President Trump's rallies. There are going to be religious events connected to those rallies. So that's another good uh, hook. In July and August, before the DNC convention, Vice President Biden will name his vi vice presidential choice, which he has promised to be a woman and is uh, you know, thought to be likely to be an African-American woman. Um, I'm just gonna reel these off very quickly in the interest of time. And August 13th, that case that I mentioned earlier about free exercise standards and is going to be, um, there's going to be briefs filed in that case in August. The DNC is going to meet in Milwaukee, we think, in, in, in uh, August, although I put an asterisk by that in the RNC convention because we don't know exactly what those conventions will look like in part due to COVID. On March 28th, if you were watching earlier, you saw Reverend Al Sharpton announce that he and Martin Luther King III are going to sponsor a march on Washington uh, for equal justice and, and racial justice and civil rights. And then in September, October, we have the Family Research Council's Value Voters Summit. Then we begin to enter the presidential debate uh, and Interestingly, the presidential debates are all happening at what I would call religiously inflected universities. The first one being at Notre Dame University. Um, the second one on October 15th, the vice president, presidential debate being at the University of Utah, which is obviously a state school, but uh, the fact that um, the, Church of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, plays such a prominent role in that state, I think will make it possible for you to pitch research in that area if that's what you do. And then the presidential debate on October 22nd at Belmont University, which is a Baptist school. Red Mass I put in there because that is the Mass that the Catholic Church does before the opening of the United States Supreme Court term for 2021. So that might also be a hook. So um, let me just uh, close by saying that I think the tips that have already been provided are so wonderful. I think empathy with reporters is a wonderful thing to do. Reporters have hard jobs, and so how can we be helpful to them? I think that's the right orientation. How can we help them do their jobs? 
and work with them. I think it's very important to take the initiative, as, as some have already mentioned, to reach out to reporters, not wait for them to reach out to you, to send them things, just little bits of things that may be useful. You may or may not be quoted, but they'll begin to regard you as someone that can be helpful to them. And then when there are things that go wrong in that in that relationship where you are misquoted or whether when when something maybe a title is put on an op-ed that you think is just does violence to your work to be to immediately contact them and be very constructive about it to say hey this looks great uh, there's just one problem here that I'm sure you can understand because of this and I hope we can get this fixed immediately and I would say nine times out of ten you're going to find some response to your concerns and that will uh, keep the relationship going in a positive way so with that I'll just stop and look forward to the conversation thank you all so much thank you Melissa for sharing and for all of your comments and your resources and the tools for our journalists as well as our scholars at this time and 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 reminder for our audience, you can submit your questions to a specific presenter or to the panel at large. So Ben will now um, handle the, the question and answer session. Great. Thank you and thanks again to our panelists for their fantastic uh, presentations. I've learned a lot throughout this session and I appreciate all of you making time to be here. And thanks to our audience for sticking around a little bit longer. We wanted to make sure that our panelists had enough time to say um, what they had to say and that you all had enough time to submit your questions. So now is the time to do that. We have plenty of time. Uh, we'll be staying here until about 1.30 Eastern to answer your questions. And I know that a number of people have already posed questions in the chat and I've been collecting those. So I'll read out a few at a time um, and, and then turn it over to you all. None of them have been directed at a particular presenter. They're all general questions. So feel free to unmute yourself panelists and, and let us know your thoughts. So one is about um, uh, from uh, a, a, a attendee named Alyssa. She asks, can any of the panelists speak to gender differences in writing for the public? She says that she's one of the co-editors of Women in Theology, which is a blog, and suspects that some of the ad hominem responses that they get on that blog might be particular to uh, gender. So that's one question. Another question is about um, uh, Muslim, so this is more of a content-based question, but one of our uh, attendees is an imam in the area and asks about um, uh, reporting on Muslim communities and the election, since Muslims have often been used as a political issue in every election in recent time, and um, one-third of Muslims in America are African-American. Does anyone want to comment on the specifics of doing public scholarship about Islam in America around the election? Um, and then one more question that I'll pose to the group is uh, about um, maybe a little bit more specific to our faculty colleagues on the panel. So this is, uh, the question is, as a new faculty member, my question is how uh, careful do I need to be or not be about bringing my personal bias or viewpoints into the classroom? We have three different questions um, and people on the panel can tackle those in any different order that they'd wish to. So does anyone want to comment maybe on that first question about gender? Um, second question about is about Islam in the United States and, and um, how to comment on Islam leading up to the election. And the third is about um, faculty members. 
maybe uh, I can volunteer one of our panelists. Um, Vince, do you want to talk about the faculty question since you're a faculty member on the panel? Uh, sure. So, briefly, I mean, I, I think um, the, uh, the classroom is another space where we engage with the public. Uh, and uh, when we're talking about, um, I mean, I, I think uh, being interviewed on CNN or quoted in the New York Times can so capture our imagination of what uh, scholarly engagement with the public uh, looks like that we forget that every year we're engaging with hundreds of members, uh, depending on your institutional context of, uh, of the public who will, uh, uh, who require um, some of the same skills uh, in terms of translating scholarly knowledge to uh, the public that uh, engaging with the mass media requires um, and relationship building and so on. Um, and uh, I mean, in terms of the specific question about, um, uh, biases or uh, personal views. Yeah, I mean, I, I have seen it. Uh, um, I've seen people, uh, colleagues very successfully both bring their own uh, views uh, into the classroom uh, and uh, have seen colleagues very successfully bracket their own views in the in the classroom. Um, at least, uh, you know, in, in the performance, obviously, we're all in the way we construct our syllabi and in the way we talk to uh, students and the the views we present are you know bringing in our, our perspective and are making an argument uh, but I, I mean I, I don't think there's one right path I, I think if one is bracketing one's uh, uh, views that I mean, both 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 techniques can provide opportunities to feel for students to feel welcome uh, if they're done well uh, and for students to uh, practice a kind of uh, engagement public engagement that we want them to be doing uh, when they're in, reading the media or when they're talking with with others in their in their future lives. Ben, can can I speak to that one as well, just briefly? Yeah. Yeah. Please. Uh, so I'm the chairperson of a relatively large department. I have about 45 uh, faculty, and uh, we're all in, in political science, obviously. And it's sort of a, a game among undergraduates, I suppose, at least according to my teaching evaluations, to try to guess the political affiliation of their professors, because most undergraduates seem to be under the impression that we are supposed to be neutral. And I think they get that coming out of high schools or whatnot. Um, and of course, that's a myth, right? You're, as an academic, free to express your opinions as you wish in the classroom. The advice that I give assistant professors, as well as my graduate students, is that they need to develop their own teaching persona. So as um, uh, Vincent just noted, some people bracket their personal beliefs and try to present themselves as an objective observer in the classroom. Others choose not to do that. I actually think both are fine. It's just a matter of developing a persona that works for you. But the thing to keep in mind is that if you have chosen in the classroom to adopt more of a neutral persona, that then means that there are moments when you can really draw the student's attention <laughs> by making a normative statement because it'll sound unusual. It'll be like, wow, now this professor is saying something that is not just the neutral observer, you know, above the fray. And there are trade-offs there because, you know, if you choose that mode, it means you're not going to say as much that might come from your own beliefs, but perhaps you feel they'll have more impact. And of course, the alternative is to uh, have your opinions uh, expressed on a more regular basis. 
if you are someone that chooses to express your opinions on a regular basis, and this sort of goes to the point about dealing with ad hominem attacks on uh, blog posts, you need to be braced for what will happen with your teaching evaluations because you're inevitably going to offend some student. That isn't necessarily a problem, um, but that's just something to be prepared for. Um, but that happens when you're trying to be neutral as well. So maybe the moral of the story is you'll never satisfy uh, students and maybe don't worry too much about the course evaluations and do your own thing and develop your own persona so that you are being authentic to your own uh, beliefs and what you feel is best pedagogically. I'll leave I it there. enter this conversation in a in a different way to answer the first and second question around women and Muslims and um, and tie it into I think what we just heard. So I think the way I would want to think about the issue of women and uh, Muslims and, and the question of neutrality is to begin to think a little more deeply about the a priori assumptions that we come into spaces with, which begins to shape the very way in which we respond. Whether we're responding in terms of expressing our point of view or taking a posture of neutrality. I would argue that there is never a posture of neutrality and that what we need to probably do more of is just to claim what our assumptions are, what our frame of reference is, what our sense of who we are is, so that we can create authentic learning environments and conversational environments. So one of the problems that I have with even the notion of nuance is that if you're not at the table, or if you have grown up in an environment where the system nature of the structures and your learnings, having a view or an appreciation for these others, then we understand that Terrence has to us what it means to act in the space of being counter. And so being counter is in itself of a necessary point of view for him to even get his, his space at the table to converse with. If you can't nuance if you're not at the table, and if you are at the table and you don't know the experiences of those who are outside, whether they be women, whether they be black people, whether they be Muslims, then there's no way for your editorial decision to be a neutral one. You're, you're just pretending that it's neutral when in fact, from the moment that the decision came to the table, it was already pre-described as either being a counter one or one that would affirm the position that you hold. And I th think that this nation is at a point where we have to be very clear and honest about what it's going to take to include not just conversationally, but in fact, to change the paradigm and the lens through which we see these counter people or counter cultures or counter groups. Thank you very much. That was a really great discussion between the three of you. And I think that you all brought up really um, helpful and complimentary points. So thank you.
Um, I do want to note that there was a question that I think was answered, but just so that everyone um, who might not have been monitoring the chat, there was a question about whether the AAR um, would provide opportunities for those who want to have more public uh, support for scholars who are interested in having more public media involvement. And I want to note that Dory uh, Tony, who's the new uh, chief, I don't want to get the title wrong, the uh, chief of public engagement. Chief of public engagement at the AAR, thank you. Um, mentioned that uh, AAR is planning more opportunities to help scholars with public media involvement, including conversations between journalists and scholars. So stay tuned for that if you're interested. Um, I'm sure that folks at the AAR would be happy to, to hear from you, but they'll also be um, providing more information in the future about that. So this is a bit of a, a nuts and bolts question. Um, and I think that um, Robbie, you brought this up a little bit in your presentation as well, but uh, the question is, how do scholars of religion and politics go about pitching articles or op-eds to national or regional newspapers, blogs, given the complexity of religion and technology, uh, religion and, and theology? So um, do you have any, like, really concrete, any of you have, have concrete ideas about that pitch process? Uh, what do you include? Do you include just a paragraph about what it is that you plan to write? Do you include the entire um, article, do you, uh, how do you, how do you pique their interest? What do you put in the subject line to make sure that they read your email when you're pitching? Well, I'll jump in. Um, so the first thing I would say is um, I've never had an op-ed published that went through the generic email or <laughs> form on a newspaper. So I think that's mostly a waste <laughs> of time. Um, so you really have to track down who the op-ed editor is and get that, you know, at least get the pitch into their into their inbox. Um, and I think, you know, you just put op-ed, yeah, you put something that, um, again, like to Melissa's point, um, op-eds have to be timely. Um, if, if you write, sometimes they talk about evergreen op-eds and those are okay, but what evergreen usually means is that they sit on the editor's desk uh, for months and months and months um, before they go anywhere. So like hooking it to what's going on in the news. I and, know. And, and, and sort of ahead of time, I think. Um, too. So uh, this, these um, uh, editorial calendar that Melissa put up is really helpful uh, to be ahead of the game. So a week ahead of, if you know, right, Juneteenth, um, that's a peg. Um, so if you know that, get it a week. Don't send it June 18th. They've already made their decisions by then. Send it like June 12th or 10th. Um, so that's, if you're ready for Juneteenth, you've probably got to the end of this week to get something in and that's it. <laughs> It'll be done by then. Um, so just kind of being aware of how those calendars work. Um, and then I think just what I've tried to do it usually is not send the whole thing. Usually as a pitch, I, I send like a paragraph. Because uh, if you can't say it in a paragraph, it's not going to be a good op-ed, right? You're kind of getting it really, here's my lead, here's what it is, and I'm going to say these three things about it, and I'm equipped to say it because of X, Y, Z. Um, you know, I'm the right person to say it. Um, I'd add something there. Those are great pieces of advice. Another thing is you, you want this thing published, right, somewhere. You worked on it, you put some time into it, you want it published somewhere. So when you send it, send it to your, your best option. And that may be, you know, the best outlet that you can think of or the one that you think is most likely to accept it or some combination of both. And when you send it, say, um, you can either say then or 24 hours later, say, 
by the way, if you know, let me know if you could let me know by tomorrow night whether you're going to be able to accept this. That would be terrific. That's then not saying that they have to, but encouraging to them to think about a timeline because if they're not and the reporters understand this, if they're not going to run it, you want somebody else to run it. So you give them what you know, 24, 48 hours, depending on the case. And then if you haven't heard from them, say, write them back and say, you know, since I haven't heard from you, I'll have to assume unless you get back to me very quickly that you won't be able to take it this, take my piece this time, but I'll look forward to sending you more pieces in the future and then move on to your other outlet. And again, put a time limit on them so that you're not left at the end of the day with something that you can't get published at an outlet because you just let it sit on a reporter's desk. It's, it's really up to you to stay um, after them in a kind and helpful way, but one that makes it clear that you have a deadline too. And I just also want to add that, um, like Robert said, you know, I've recently tried to uh, get a few things published. And when you send them to like the, you know, um, op-ed New York Times, you know, general kind of email, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And I've discovered that um, with the help of a media, per media uh, person at, at Georgetown, it's been really helpful to kind of get something out there. But without her assistance, I was kind of just kind of locked out of the process. And uh, I, I have now be begun the process of kind of like reaching out to a reporter I met you know, uh, months ago to try to just reconnect um, because I think having that kind of personal encounter is helpful. I also had someone reach out to me just on Twitter. I'm not a huge Twitter person. I actually don't like it, but I'm forcing myself to use it more. And a reporter contacted me for about a quote recently, again, based on some of, my, some of the people I follow. So I think those might be some things to kind of take in, in consideration as well, using uh, your, your university media person and also, you know, using Twitter as a potential outlet as well and, and contacting reporters before you actually want their help. Uh, David, I, I think I actually muted your phone just because there was a little bit of feedback. So if you can unmute your phone. I can. Um, can you hear me now, yeah. as they say? Uh, if I could just quickly build on what's been said, and I agree with all of that, I was actually going to make the same point about finding somebody at your university um, who might be able to help you at least identify who the individual is at a given newspaper to, to contact. But just remember um, that building on what Melissa said, you do not want to send one piece to multiple publications at the same time, uh, because that could put you in the rather awkward situation of more than one actually accepting it. And then you have to decline someone having accepted your piece, which is likely to burn a bridge. Um, that might have been obvious, but I know in some disciplines, uh, people submit academic articles to multiple journals at once. This is not a situation where you'd want to do that. Great. Thank you. Very helpful. So uh, I think given the time that we have left, I'll turn it back over to Marion as our moderator um, and give her moderators privilege to, to pitch out a last question or um, share any last thoughts. Yes. Um, I just want to again say thank you uh, to the six panelists for showing up and allowing us to hear your voice from your context and to help us as scholars, as human beings, uh, get a clearer view of where we are in light of what the election that's coming forth. And again, a very special thank you to um, Dr. Iva Carruthers, uh, to Dr. Vince Lloyd and to Dr. Terrence Johnson for last week uh, coming up and, and helping us. So thank you so much for accepting that.
And uh, if there are no more questions, um, I just want to remind everyone that um, we will have another special edition webinar in July, providing tools and resources for our faculty members and scholars in preparation for the fall semester. Ben? Great, thanks. Um, I guess then with our last five minutes, uh, I just wanna leave time for our panelists. If you have 20, 20 seconds or 30 seconds of closing thoughts, um, please feel free to share those. I just want to encourage everyone, don't forget about your local museums and sort of local sort of think tanks. Um, you know, I've found that working with the Smithsonian has been very helpful, not only in terms of extending my syllabi, but also reaching, again, different kinds of publics. So don't forget those outlets as potential publics that you can engage and actually put on symposiums and, and forums as well. Um, I'll just offer one, two, two quick things. Um, one is that uh, PRI does have a public fellows program um, and we are looking, uh, we're in our year two of three. So we, um, and part of that program really is to train scholars uh, to be more publicly engaged. If you have some interest in that, um, you can drop me uh, a note um, and uh, we can, uh, can send you some information. You can see it on our website uh, now as well. Uh, but I just want to say thanks again uh, to everyone for all the work I know all of you are doing, um, you know, out out in your your publics uh, and to the reporters on online as well. Thank you. I would like to thank everyone and um, only add that I hope we all pay a little more attention to the power of words and language. I was reminded that right after Katrina and very immediately black people were called refugees. Um, a group got together and created a lexicon for newsrooms. And I know that in this moment, right now, the same is being done. But I do want to reiterate that all of us have a deep responsibility to understand that words have power. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, maybe, I think, David, Melissa, or Vince? Thank you all for, for being here. And um, I, my only parting word of wisdom would be to uh, not forget about the value of uh, peer research and scholarship uh, itself, uh, even as media engagement can be tantalizing and, and important and can reach broader audiences. The, the work in the library and the archives and the databases uh, has an enormous value as well. Great, thank you for that reminder. Um, I, I'll give the advice that if you're going to do a Zoom call, you should test out your technology before the call. That would be my main piece of advice. Um, but let me just reiterate something that's been said, but I think it's worth repeating as sort of a final point, and that is the importance of relationships when you're working with the media. Um, a lot of what ends up in print or on the air does actually come from a relationship that's been built and that in turn requires patience again remember to think about the constraints on those folks in the media they have very difficult jobs and so if emails go unanswered or you're being asked to do something at the last minute it's only because of the particular <laughs> somewhat difficult circumstances that those press people are in um i'll just say a, a few uh, miscellaneous things 
One is I remember recently a reporter telling me that they were dismayed by how long it took some people to get back to them on email. So I would just say, and I know those of us who email other academic colleagues are used to perhaps taking our time, meaning, you know, you can get back to the next day or something like that. And reporters, I think, really appreciate it when you get back to them, if you can, immediately and say, oh, I'm on a phone call right now, but I'd be happy to talk to you, especially if they're asking you for a quote and say, hey, I'm, I'm on a phone call right now, but I'll call you right back. And so they know that you're out there, you've got their message and you're going to respond to them. So if you are able, not you're not always able, but if you're able to respond to them immediately and give them a sense of when you can get back to them and get back to them quickly, that's appreciated. Another thing is, um, we're appropriately thinking about diversity and the kind of voices that are in the public square. Who has not had uh, opportunity that they should have to address wider publics? And so it's a good time to be thinking about those of us who do have contacts with the media to be sure we're, we're sending names of people that we think that they haven't heard from enough and that we're working with organizations like Religion Link, I believe I'm getting that right, where they send around um, contact information for sources that could be tapped for particular stories. So I think it's an obligation that, you know, some of us who have those relationships to continue to try to work to broaden the diversity of voices that are heard, especially at this time in our nation's history. And then the last thing I will say is just one, um, one publication that I have uh, been working with recently is Emory University Law School's Canopy Forum. And it focuses on legal issues, but it's not just for lawyers. So if you have an issue that's religiously inflected and legally inflected, that might be um, a good academic option that perhaps uh, not as many people know about that sh should know about it. Thanks, everybody. Great, thank you. Well, that's perfect. It brings us to time. I want to thank again um, really, truly, all of our panelists, I appreciate your flexibility and your willingness to share your time and expertise with us um, on this webinar. We sincerely appreciate it. And thanks to all of the attendees for joining us today. We know you have a lot of different Zoom options these days, and we appreciate you, you joining us for this webinar. Um, I want to invite all of you, if you'd like to continue the conversation, please feel free to reach out to me at bmarcus at freedomforum.org. You should have my email address in the Zoom registration link. Um, and I'm sure that my colleagues Marianne and Dory at the AAR would also be happy to hear from you. And if you'd like to connect with any of our panelists, you can shoot me an email and I'd be happy to put you in touch. So thank you all of you for, for joining us today and I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Yeah.